0: Hey, everybody, welcome to today's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. All right. So. This week we're actually going to be doing something that we've done in the past, episodes like Backwards Down the Science Line and Science on the Mountain, and basically we are just going through a few important bits of science news to make sure that all of you are kept up to date on some of the most important headlines in the science world today. So, without any further introduction, let us do this thing, let's have a good time, sit back, relax, and enjoy. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to the Imposter Podcast. I am your humble host, Amir, and I hope you all have been having a fantastic week so far. It is about to get that much better because, hey, you're listening to the Imposter. It doesn't get much better than that. You know what I'm saying? All right. So as I mentioned in the introduction, today we're going to be looking at a few of the most recent, in my opinion, most relevant headlines in the science world. And I thought it might be nice to kick things off with a little trip down memory lane. Now, unfortunately, we're going to start by tackling quite a sad issue, in my opinion, a sad issue. But don't worry, I've structured it. We're going to go from sad to happy this episode. So you will end on a good note, don't worry. All right. Now, for those of you that don't remember, let me Help you. On April 20th, 2010, a seal on the BP oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico malfunctioned, resulting in the death of 11 people, unfortunately, that were working on the rig at the time, and a tremendous stress on the marine environment. Now, the seal that broke was located a mile below the sea surface, adding further complications to actually fixing the problem. So, after 87 days and around 32 million barrels of oil spilled later, the seal was finally, finally capped. Now, several lawsuits, studies, and reports um, then ensued, and we are still getting insights into what exactly happened and what the ecological effects after this event are. So. One of the big issues that BP tried to deflect was the discovery of oil contaminants on the seafloor. Now, BP claimed that the contaminants were all from natural oil seeps, which do occur. However, some other people weren't as convinced. Which brings us to today's episode and the reason why the Deepwater Horizon oil spill is back in the news after six years. You see... A study was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, titled Sustained Deposition of Contaminants from Deepwater Horizon Spill. It's a very interesting study, and it starts by briefly explaining that approximately between 5 and 10 percent of the spilled oil made its way to the seafloor by hitching a ride on something called marine snow. Now, marine snow, for those of you that don't know, is pretty much when small organisms or particles like phytoplankton or feces and mucus and all sorts of stuff, you know, kind of et cetera, et cetera, um, and they're all kind of found at the surface, um, or I guess further up in the water column as well. uh, It's when all these different particles sink down to the seafloor. And they sink down over time, but as they fall, as they sink they kind of gather up different pieces of debris along the way. Kind of like a snowball picks up more and more snow when it falls down a mountain. So, the study hypothesized that oil contaminants from the spill were part of that debris that got picked up by the marine snow as it was falling to the seafloor. And it's this mechanism in which petroleum-based hydrocarbons were found on the seafloor. Basically, that indeed bp's spill is the cause for why we have been finding oil contaminants on the on the floor by the spill okay but i bet you're wondering hey amir come on like how can they prove that that oil is from you know the oil spill and not from these natural seeps that do occur well i will tell you kind folk you see these very clever uh, scientists, or the, the authors of the study, were able to trace and track two key components of drilling mud, barium and olfins. And they found that these components were in the water column and slowly sinking over a course of five months. Now, this is significant because we usually think of oil as kind of staying at the surface. You know, you see the oil slick after an oil spill. You don't really think of it as floating around and slowly sinking. But the fact that we now have identified using these, uh, these components from drilling mud, not only that the oil from the spill was indeed the same that was found on the sea floor, but also that oil can break down and float down as marine snow. So, that's an important uh, an important discovery all on its own. Now, it's my own belief that though the internet has a lot of great benefits, one of uh, the detractors, aside from all the trolls and whatnot, is the fact that people get desensitized a lot more easily. You see tragedy, you encounter tragedy a lot more often than I think you naturally would uh, if you weren't able to be in touch with every place around the world. So. We hear a lot about oil spills, and people don't really care as much, but you really should. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill is regarded as one of the worst environmental disasters in U.S. history, and, and globally, I would argue. And yes, there were tighter regulations in monitoring that have been put in place afterwards and continue to be do- done, um, and that is important, that is very important, don't get me wrong, I do want to emphasize that. However, there is the root of the problem that is yet to be addressed, which is, at least in my opinion, the demand to mine and drill for natural resources. And it's only recently that this has been given more than just a token amount of attention. And it's my belief that we really need to start thinking hard both using science-based facts and evidence but also philosophically about where we want the future to go and what we want it to be. Because we can drill and mine, and we can continue to do so, but do we have to? Do we need to? What sort of future are we going to have if we continue to do so? So, lots of things to ponder, but you know, it was only a few weeks ago that Shell had another spill in the Gulf of Mexico, leaving an oil slick on the surface that was... Uh, reports were saying it was 13 miles wide, I believe. And, you know, I... I It's I might actually, I might have to do an episode about oil spills, because there's really, there's so much stuff to know, you know, there's the different types of spills, the different types of cleanup, the different types of oil, what's gotten better, what's gotten, I mean, yeah, okay, uh, yes, I actually, reflecting about this and saying it all out loud, I am definitely going to be doing an episode on oil spills, so, yeah, stay tuned for that, um, that will, be, uh, that will be coming out soon, I think. Anyway, I, I cannot highlight enough how important it is to understand uh, the impacts and the many complex layers there are to not just deep-sea mining and drilling, but to the fossil fuel industry in general. I mean, it's really, it's not so cut and dry. There's so many different facets to it. So we'll, we'll get into that in a separate episode, I guess, but... Do your own research, as always. It's, it's very important to do that also. Uh, and make up your own mind. All right, but enough about that. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> I will say, we're, everybody take a knee. Take a knee. We're going to have a deep, deep moment here. So the last few times that I've done episodes like this, I've found it to get harder and harder because there is, frankly, just so much to choose from through all the different fields of the sciences. And you know, even this week, it was it was difficult to choose which news stories should make the cut. But you know, uh, I I would just like to take this moment to to say, because of all that, that there are a lot of important issues and updates and studies and research uh, that I won't get to talk to you about, or that won't go in your general circle, and you might not hear about. So I would just say that I urge you all to, as always. Maybe just go go to a science and environment section of your newspaper, or if you want, go to an actual science website or news outlet uh, like IFL Science or Science Direct or or you know any of the other ones, just like that. So anyway, back to this week. Now we we've heard actually a lot of interesting things going on this week. We've heard about the importance of green tech, uh, the discovery of seven new species of peacock spider, which. I will admit, as an arachnophobe myself, I didn't really care for this news until I actually saw the picture of the peacock spider, and now I would actually entertain the notion of being on the same continent as one. Maybe. Anyway. Out of all the cool stuff that came out this week, I decided to choose an article that I saw on IFL Science. And, again, this this isn't going to be the most shocking news story. But coming off of the heels of the Deep Sea Horizon news report that we just did and the topic of benthic, or bottom-dwelling ecosystems, uh, and their degradation, we have this fun little article, which is reporting about research done on the hydrothermal vents that are found sprinkled throughout the seafloors of the oceans. So the article mentions a report being published in Frontiers in Marine Science, that explains just how important deep sea vents are. For example, deep sea vents can help support and connect different marine ecosystems by providing around 13% of the energy entering the deep sea environment. This is important because if you think about it, in the deep, the sun's light isn't really getting down to the bottom, not really. So energy needs to be produced somehow, which is done by the release of gases and minerals like methane, which these deep sea primary producers then use for energy, which are then eaten by the primary consumers, and then the secondary consumers, and then the tertiary consumers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know it's pretty cool. It's it's a nice little food web they got going down, and it's an interesting source of energy, because these deep sea primary producers have essentially, if you think about it, the same role as plants and algae do um, up. When they can get sunlight, but instead of photosynthesizing the sun's light, these deep-sea producers are using chemosynthesis, which if you avid imposter listeners remember we briefly talked about in an earlier episode. Alright, anyway, now I get to do a little bit for my audition tape, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? But wait, there's more! You see, these deep-sea primary producers may be more relevant than ever. This report found that they can consume up to 90% of the methane released from these, these deep-sea vents. And this prevents a lot of methane and other gases and minerals from entering the atmosphere. And I'm gonna be honest, I don't really think our atmosphere needs any more stressors, so it seems like a plus. Now. There's a bit more in this article that is just as fascinating, uh, but I'm not going to get into. So I would highly implore you all to check it out on my blog. I'll put the links to it and uh, do some of your own research again as well. I'm going to keep saying that because it's important. Ah, okay, one last thing actually. So as we're on the topic of the deep, I feel a bit compelled to mention again that a really, really exciting deep sea expedition is currently taking place Aboard the James Cook, and it is actually, in fact, our guest for episodes 18 and 19 of The Imposter, Otis Bruner, uh, who is a member of the Deep Sea Crew, which is the Conservation Research Unit, uh, a a part of Dr. Kerry Howell's lab. The expedition is a collaborative effort between Plymouth and Oxford Universities, JNCC and BGS. And I'm going to nab this from their Twitter page right now. It is what the expedition is all about. It's investigating the influence of population connectivity on diversity in the deep sea. And our good friend Otis is actually boarding the James Cook today. So, best of luck, Otis. We're hoping we can get some updates from him during the expedition, so that might be in store for everyone. So, keep your eyes peeled. But if you can't wait that long, if it's just too much for you, well, don't worry because you can actually follow the expedition of the Deep Sea crew on Twitter at DeepseaCRU or at underscore Deep Links. You can also follow them on their website, deeplinksproject.wordpress.com. Now, don't worry if you don't remember all of that. I will have all the links to all the websites. On my own blog, so check it out after the episode if you would like to learn more. And I would highly, obviously, I'm a bit biased, but I would highly encourage it. They have some great pictures that they've been putting up on Twitter. Um, they got a little drone on the boat, so they can take some pretty cool shots. So yeah, check it out. All right, the last little tidbit I'm going to say about deep sea vents, and I promise this is this is actually the last, is actually just a quote uh, that I read and agreed with in the article by Andrew Thaler who is a deep-sea ecologist and tweets at S. Fried Scientist. He's got quite the Twitter following. And i got to say, he does post some pretty good posts. And this one he recently put up, which I guess was just his thoughts, uh, goes like this. At some point, we're going to have to make a choice between disposable technology and ecosystems we'll never see. Now, this, of course, was in relation to deep-sea mining, but I think the overall message can actually be applied to many ecosystems throughout the world. So I thought it was, it was a nice way to sum up a lot, of, a lot of different situations with one line. All right. So the last news story for today is going to be quick, but it's going to be leaving on a positive note, just like I promised. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie to you. Why would I do that? Now, as I've reported to you in the past, the issue of access to peer-reviewed journals and studies is a contentious one, and it only seems to be getting more heated. Now, yes, for these big journals, I do understand there is a business to run, but at the same time, I think everyone should have access to the sciences. And I think this is especially important in this day and age, where the sciences are either thought of as mumbo-jumbo or magic and sorcery or even if they're not and they're taken seriously, you know, even if it's in academia, for example, the cost of these journal subscriptions is so high, it's pricing very prestigious institutions out, Ivy Leagues. And we know the efforts of people like Alexandra Elbaquian and Aaron Swartz, uh, among many others, that uh, have released millions of publications in protest. Um, and it, it did bring the issue to the mainstream, I think, but you know, it's, it's definitely still an issue that has plagued much debate, and it is a tricky one. Which brings us to the last story. In an effort to address this issue of free access, many European leaders have convened and subsequently decided to make all European scientific papers free and accessible to any and everyone by the year 2020. The plan is shaped around three guiding pillars. Sharing knowledge freely, open access, and reusing research data. Now, this is huge. I mean, like, really good, really big deal. Not just for academics, but for literally everyone. Now, to give a really, really good explanation of all the important implications about this, I'm actually not going to tell you myself because I'm just going to babble on. Instead, I'm going to give you the much more concise explanation from the article in Science Alert, which put it out beautifully. Open access would totally transform the long-question paid-for subscription model that is used by many scientific journals. It would also undermine the common practice of releasing reports under embargo a method that allows scientific journals to favor certain science communicators and members of the media to the great detriment of others. If the 2020 target is met, it would mean that millions of people would have free access to the knowledge and information produced by experts in physics, astronomy, mathematics, engineering, biology... It would make the sciences accessible to individuals in ways that previous generations could only dream about. I think that summed things up pretty nicely. So, there's your nice little bow for you. Hopefully, by 2020, we will be having free papers from Europe. All right, everybody, that is our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to end early, but stay tuned because we have some very exciting interviews coming up in the next few weeks. Don't forget to like and share The imposter on Facebook, SoundCloud, and follow me on Twitter at anotherfogle. You can also get all the supporting information to everything that we talked about. That's also links to the Deep Sea Crew Expedition, the Deep Links Expedition. Uh, all the links to that are all on the blog, so check it out. I highly urge you to. And we will see you next week. Have a fantastic weekend. I'm Amir Fogel. You take care internet.